Good morning. Welcome this morning again. My name is Pastor Steve. I'm one of the pastors around here, and it is my privilege this morning to be preaching the Sanctity of Life message this morning. So as the parents are coming back from dropping off kids in their classes and people are getting getting back into their seats, it would just, just like to again extend a welcome. And this morning we're going to be in a couple different places, So, but we're starting out in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. So as, as we're getting ready to get going, you can find that. That is actually on page 1 of the Bible. If, it's, uh, if you're looking at the Pew Bible, it should be easy enough to find. So this morning, as I said, we are preaching. This is the Sanctity of Life Sunday, and so we're going to be uh, going to be looking at that this morning, and we're going to be looking at that from Genesis chapter one. Let us read together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get going on the text this morning. Genesis chapter one, verses twenty-six through twenty-eight. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness." And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Father God, again, we come before you in prayer. Lord, it is because of you that we have life at all. It is because of you that we come here today. I pray that as we work through these passages this morning, Lord, that you would bless this time. Help us to understand your purpose for life in the first place. Lord, I pray that you would give me a clear mind and a clear heart as I preach your words this morning. I pray that these would not be my words, and I pray that they would be received by receptive hearts seeking to hear your voice. Your people hear your voice, Lord. We thank you and we praise you that we can be here. I pray that you bless this service, and I pray, amen. So the average child asks around 300 to 350 questions a day. Any of you who are teachers or parents or have ever seen a child before probably realize that fact. So I have, I have three children, my wife and I, Alyssa and I, we have three children with a fourth on the way, a six-year-old and a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Two-year-old doesn't talk much, but he's still starting to ask questions. So if you average it out over the course of a year, we receive somewhere around 10 billion questions for the course of a year. But what a child is doing when they're asking questions is they're trying to figure out their world. They're trying to understand why they're here, what it's it all about. And if you, if I were to break down the questions that we get, for the most part, they have something to do with what's it for? You know, Waylon, he's six. He's our oldest and he is into everything having to do with farming. He loves farming, farming equipment, farming, just everything. He watches farming videos that are not even designed for kids, but he just sits and watches them for hours. So as we're driving around and doing anything around the Greenville area where we live, there's farming going on all over the place. And he's constantly asking, what's that machine? What's that piece of equipment? But what, he doesn't really want to know the name of the piece of equipment or the, or the tractor or the combine or whatever it is. What he wants to know is what does it do? What is it for? And I think this is a very important question for all of us as we go through life. What is it for? 
What's, this is the, the basis of our worldview. You know, the first question we must ask ourselves is, why am I here? Who made me? Where am I going? These are the basic questions of how we understand the world around us. Now, on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States, ruled by judicial fiat, and this is a date which will live in infamy, to quote a president, they ruled in favor of Roe and of Doe. There's two cases that came out at the same time, but typically they're lumped together. Roe v. Wade, which legalized by judicial fiat abortion in all 50 states. Eleven years later, President Ronald Reagan announced that uh, the, on January 22nd of 1984, he announced that the third Sunday of every January would be known as Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is why we're celebrating that today. The purpose of Sanctity of Life Sunday is to celebrate the gift of life given to us by God. And also, it is to remember and bring renewed awareness to the atrocities of abortion. So today, as we celebrate Sanctity of Life Sunday, I want to go back to that question my kids are always asking. What's it for? What is life even for in the first place? I feel like this is a way to get underneath of all of the debates about uh, abortion or homosexuality or any of these things, but we start with an understanding of why God made us in the first place. This is a question about purpose. It's a question about meaning. And the short answer to this is what we call the one-sentence summary. This is the the thing that's going to drive the text, going to drive our message this morning, the one-sentence summary. It's a simple answer to the question about what's it for. And that is this. God made us for himself to show himself and to multiply his fame on the earth. So God made us for himself to show himself and to multiply his fame on the earth. And that's why we're here you know, there are three points that we're going to look at this morning. They're going to be kind of the roadmap to guide us as we work through this discussion. You know, as, as you look at the, the idea of sanctity of life and being made in the image of God, the imago dei, as it's called, there's so many different things that we could talk about. So we're going to try to be, keep our, our, our conversation narrow on this topic this morning, asking what's it for. So first, the first point this morning is going to be, we are created to image him. But secondly, because of sin, we have a marred image, which has effects in everything that we do. But finally, Christ is the true image, and through him we are being renewed. And as I said, there is a lot of different directions we could go with this. There's a lot of things I'm not going to be able to touch on. So, but we're, we're going to try to keep this on topic. I'm going to try to keep this on topic. Another reason that we're, that another thing that I'm going to talk about today briefly is on Tuesday, I think actually, actually think it was Monday of this week in Canada, a new law was passed. It's, it's called Bill C4. It, it would actually went into effect. And what this does is this bans anything having to do with, with so-called conversion therapy, which makes it illegal for anyone in any circumstance to encourage someone away from LGBTQ identity. You know, if in Canada today, if you were to have a brother or sister in Christ come to you and say that they're struggling with homosexuality and you were to pray with them and encourage them away from succumbing to that temptation, you would be liable to five years in prison in Canada. That is the basis of this law. Pastors, 
Biblical counselors, they are not allowed to preach or teach against the homosexual, homosexual and transgender movement in Canada. So across Canada and the United States today, there are many churches who are actually preaching on biblical sexuality. And I think actually biblical sexuality ties directly into the question of what is life for? And so we're going to be touching on that in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Canada. You know, there are many preachers in Canada who are breaking the law today on purpose. And for that, we applaud them and we, we stand with them. But as we get started, point number one, we're created to image him. This is found in verse 26 and verse 28 of Genesis. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female created he them. So God created us in in his image, but what exactly does that mean? It doesn't mean that we look like God in a physical sense, because we find in John chapter 4, verse 24, that Jesus says that God is spirit. That means God doesn't have a body. What this is talking about is what we call the divine simplicity of God. God is a simple being, which means he's not made up of parts and pieces. You can't take a part away from God or add a part to God because that would make him less than God or more than God. So what does it mean when we say that we are created in God's image? You know, there are tomes written on this topic, but we're going to keep it simple. And simply put, when it says that we are created to in the image of God, it means we're created to image him. We're created as a picture of who God is. We're created to show something about God in the way that we are made. Psalm 19, verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above display his handiwork. Verse 2 says, Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night brings forth knowledge. This is what we call general revelation. In in the way God created the world, for the purposes for which God created the world, everything was designed to point back to him. And the final piece in that creation puzzle was the creation of man. But we were created differently than everything else, in a very specific way. Everything was created to display his glory and his majesty and his holiness. But with humanity being the finishing touch... He gave us, he empowered us with the ability for speech, for language, for culture, for art, for appreciation and creation of beauty. He created us to be able to speak his words. And this is what we call special revelation. Special revelation is God's words to men. That's the scripture. It's, it's, something, it's God's words to man that are articulable. We can, we can hear them. We can speak them, we can understand them, and we can speak them to others. Let's think about how this is borne out in the passage before us. It says this, of the, of the man and woman, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, in the garden before the fall, the way God's fame and glory were spread around the earth was not through evangelism. There was no need for the Great Commission if there was no fallen people. But the way God's fame was spread was through procreation. As men and women who were sinless, if, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, and they remained in the garden, as they, were, as they would have babies, they would teach those babies to glorify God, who would then get married and teach those babies to glorify God. And the, the glory of God and his fame through special revelation 
would be spread throughout the whole earth. As humans fulfilled the creation mandate to multiply, to be fruitful and multiply, the fame of God would be through the proclamation of his special revelation through the words of sinless people to their children, teaching them in the way they should go. But that's not how it is now, is it? And this is what leads us into point number two. Because in Genesis chapter 3, everything is messed up. We don't see the full picture of the image of God on man after the fall. The image of God, the way men and women were designed by God to proclaim his glory, that proclamation of general and special revelation was marred in the fall. And once marred, it has affected everything. So point number two, we're actually going to be turning quickly to Romans chapter 1. This is going to be page 939 in the Black Pew Bible, if you're using that, or 830 in the Red Pew Bible. In this passage, we can see what happens when the image of God is marred in man. So Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19, says this, What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and to impurity, to this dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, abortion isn't the problem. Homosexuality is not the problem. Transgenderism isn't the problem. Pornography isn't the problem. Racism isn't the problem. None of those things are the ultimate problem. What we see in this passage is that the ultimate problem is a worship problem. It's an exchange. It's a, it's a turning over. It's a worship of self rather than creator. It's a desire to recreate the world in my image. The problem is that we believe what the serpent said to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, when he said, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. At that moment, and the fall that was its consequence, the inclination of the heart of man was turned to recreating the world in his own image, turning from the image of God in which he was created, the purpose for which God created man, to recreating the world in his own image. These sins, abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, pornography, you name it, they're not just sins arbitrarily. They're not just sins because God decided to make them sins. They're sins because they attack at the very root of why God created us in the first place. They turn creation order on its head. They're a blatant rejection of the image of God and the intention of God and the way that we were made. 
You know, before the fall, the divine mandate given to man, in the divine mandate we were given to man, we were instructed to be cultivators of the ground. The first task that, that Adam was given was to cultivate the earth, was to keep the garden, was to protect it, and was to be fruitful and multiply. multiply. These are all life-giving and life-sustaining activities. God placed his image on humans, not as just men or as just women, but as men and women collectively. And it is through that union that God has chosen to bring new life into the world. God's focus in creation was life. There's a good and right design in maleness and femaleness and the union of the two that we see all throughout creation. Even to the level of flowers, you see male and female. But when we blur the line of what God has created, we try to recreate the world in our image. None of the activities above, whether it be abortion or homosexuality or transgenderism or pornography or racism or any of these things, none of these things are life-giving. They're life-taking. That is why it's rightly said that secular culture is a culture of death. Or as I like to say, it's a culture of anti-life. Because as culture expands and, and turns more in on itself, it's not just seeking to destroy unwanted life. It's seeking to prevent life from happening in the first place. We see this pattern happening all over the world. The more secularized the nation becomes, the less babies that are born. Just look at, look at Japan. Look at places in the, in, in the east. Look at places in the west. Japan is an interesting study because right now there's about 129 million people in Japan, but their birth rate is so low and it's getting worse that in the next 40 years, they're expected to lose about 40 million people and be down to about 88 million people. Because And they're the most secular nation in the world. There's actually more Christians in North Korea than there are in Japan. And Japan is not actually close to Christianity. But they just don't care. They're completely secular. But as I said, this, that's not a pattern that we just see in, in Japan or in, in China, where, the, where they have the same issue, or South Korea. That's a pattern that's happening here in the United States. Abortion is evil because it's a willful destruction and silencing of the proclamation of God's glory in the image bearer who is murdered. Homosexuality is sinful because it's a rejection of God's right design for human sexuality, and what, in, in, which is to bring life into the world through the union of husband and wife. Transgenderism is a blatant exercise in recreating ourselves in our own image. It exchanges the image of God and maleness and femaleness for a lie. Ontology trumps autonomy. And what this means is that the way that God made us will eventually and forcefully thwart our self-will in destroying our God-given bodies. Now, this next part I want to say very carefully. This is something I've, I've been thinking about. Because it's easy to point fingers at, at those on the outside and say that they don't have a proper understanding of life. But we need to think very carefully about this. And we see in Genesis chapter 1 that one of the purposes for which God created us male and female is for procreation. Now, it's a very new phenomenon in human history that we can separate sex from childbearing. We need to all be very careful. You know, there's many young families in this, in this room, 
my wife and I are, were one of them. And we need to be very careful what means we use and promote for contraception. You know, in 1965, the American College of Gynecology and Obstetrics actually changed the definition of pregnancy. Changed it from beginning at fertilization to beginning at implantation. And as we saw in the video before, that's about a seven-day period. And what this means is that if you're using a contraceptive that claims to prevent pregnancy, there is a good chance that it's actually preventing implantation and not fertilization. And if we believe that life begins at the moment of fertilization, it is important that we use means of contraception that don't allow life to begin, only to remove its ability to continue. Another point that I want to make that I'm not 100% settled on, this is something I have been wrestling with over the past few years, is the idea of rigid family planning. You know, one of the questions that my wife and I get a lot when we, when we announce that we're pregnant is, oh, was this one planned? But I, I wonder, have we imbibed a secular view of children and childbearing from the world? Have we taken that in? Because it is becoming the norm to only have two, maybe three kids, or wait to have kids till I'm financially set or I've achieved a certain level of education or whatever. But is that, is that in accord with the way God created the world and for the purpose for which we were created? If the purpose for which God created male and female was to multiply on the earth and thereby spread his fame, what level of control should we as married couples assume? As I said, I'm not, I'm not settled on this in my own mind, but God has been changing my heart on some of these issues. I guess, let me ask it this way. Is it in accordance with God's design for marriage that we prioritize financial security and the acquisition of things or, or educational level over having and raising children? Now, these are questions that I'm personally wrestling with, but and I realize that these are very sensitive and personal topics, and I'm not trying to accuse. I'm not trying to question anyone. I'm just trying to, to shed a light and spur deeper and more biblical thought on these issues. You know, we, we, we like to say that we believe in life, in the sanctity of life. But is that belief actually impacting how we live and what we do? Now, as we think about how God made man to proclaim his glory through both general and special revelation, what happens when that image is marred? and we no longer image him or reflect him as we should, how can we get back to the purpose for which God created us? You know, we don't have an external problem with an internal solution. We can't look inwards to fix our problem, the marred image of God. We have an internal problem. The sin is in us, and we need an external solution, and that's Christ. And this is what brings us to point number three, which we're going to get to Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn there quickly. This is a true image, and it's renewal. 
If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 893 in the Black Pew Bible. So Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20, and then we'll jump directly into Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. It says this, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all of creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible were the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the church, the the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 3, starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, is all and in all. As we think about the topics of abortion and homosexuality, it, it can be easy to think of ourselves like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 that prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and the unjust and the adulterers and even the tax collectors. But here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul doesn't really give us that option, does he? He says that we are or were the sexually immoral, the impure, the covetousness, the covetous, which is idolatry. It's interesting he adds that. The angry were the malicious, the slanderers were the obscene, were the liars. And I think we can find ourselves somewhere on that list. You see, the marred image of God in us is a terminal diagnosis for all of us, apart from Christ. At the center of it all is that we do not recognize Christ as the one who is preeminent over all things. We try, as, we, as I said before, to recreate the world in ourselves in our own image. What we find in this passage is that Jesus isn't Adam 2.0. He is the God-man. He is both the creator of all things and the reconciler of the things that he created. Well, Adam and Eve were created by God in the garden, in his image, as representatives of him in the world, they were still just purely human. The very best that they could offer their progeny was a sin-free nature if they somehow managed to not fall into sin. What I mean is if Adam and Eve had never sinned, their children would be born without a, nat- without a sin nature, but they would still have had the ability to sin. They would still have had the ability to fall themselves. 
The sword of Damocles, called sin, would forever be hanging over the human race. But this is what makes Jesus infinitely better. When Jesus comes, he isn't just made in the image of God. He is the image of God. He is the God-man. He is the perfect and sinless one. He is true God of true God, but also true man. What Jesus brings to us, if we are in him, is he corrects the damage caused by the marring of the image of God on us, but he also gives us his righteousness. Righteousness that leads to eternal life. The righteousness of Christ that takes away any threat of sin. This means that through Christ, we can, we can begin to fully, we can begin to fulfill the purpose for which he has made us, which is to show God and multiply his fame on the earth. This is not to say that we don't sin here and now, but what this means is that in our glorified state at the end of all things, when we are in heaven, the threat of sin will no longer exist and will never threaten us ever again. It will never threaten us, threaten our union with God ever again. Now, if you're an unbeliever, I'm glad that you're here. And I hope that you take time to ask the question that we started with. What is it for? And I encourage you to hold up your understanding of the purpose and the meaning of life against the passages that we've looked at so far this morning. And ask yourself, which of those, which of those things provides a consistent and coherent explanation to why we're here? And remember, inconsistency is the sign of a failed argument. Let me ask you another thing. Where does your meaning and purpose in life come from? And do you really think that you're up to the challenge to create ultimate meaning for yourself? If you have questions about this, you can ask the person who invited you to church today. You can talk to myself, or you can talk to somebody else who looks like they're regular around here, one of the other pastors or the other members. Ask somebody to read the book of Luke with you. Check these things out. Test these things. See if they're true. And turn to Christ. And you will find that he is more than a sufficient Savior. Now, if we are in Christ, what do we do about this marred image? Nothing. Christ has already done it. He is the one who makes us alive together with him by the blood of his cross. The old self with his desire to worship the creature rather than the creator is put off and must be continually put off. And through the Spirit, we are renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, Christ. Christ being the true image and imputing to us his obedience and righteousness is the basis for our peace and joy. Since the fall, one of the ways that we multiply the fame and proclaim the glory of God is to speak the truth of Christ to our unbelieving neighbors. We fulfill the creation mandate and God's purpose in us when we come together as believers on Sunday mornings and in small groups and in coffee dates as we discuss the things of God together. We show that, our, that we have correct worship when we assist our children in raising their own children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and teach our grandchildren about God and His Word. We magnify the glory of God when we celebrate family worship together 
even when our kids are not listening and going crazy and acting up, and we're still fulfilling the mandate God has given to us to show his glory in the earth. This is what gives us the basis to encourage and pray with someone who's struggling or simply succumbing to same-sex attraction. We know why we're here. We know what's it for. This is what aids us as we speak to the expectant mother who's contemplating abortion because we can speak to her about the God-given worth and value and purpose for that baby. There is an inevitable hopelessness and purposelessness that comes from trying to remake the world in our image. But we have the true image, the God-man himself. We celebrate Sanctity of Life Sunday because life is sacred. And life is sacred because it's made in the image of God. And God created us in his image to reflect and declare to the world around us the holy nature and the gloriousness and the goodness of God. This is what life is for. What other purpose do we need? Let's pray. Father God, again, as we come before you, we thank you that you are God and that we are not. Lord, forgive us for the way that we have imbibed the world's understanding of life and meaning of life, even without realizing it. Forgive us when we are silent, when we should be speaking against the atrocities of abortion, the willful destruction of human life. Forgive us. Forgive the church for being silent, which led to the decision in 1973 to legalize abortion in all 50 states. Forgive us as your church for making it reasonable to the Canadian government to ban conversion therapy, to ban the preaching of your word on the topics of homosexuality and transgenderism and the like. Lord, forgive us. Turn our hearts once again towards you. Help us to remember what is it for, to remember that we are created by you, for you, to show you, but to multiply your fame in the earth and let that be the guiding principle in all the decisions that we make. Forgive us this by getting distracted by all the things going on in our world and not keeping that purpose for which you created us as our forefront and our center. Forgive us for not, keeping, for not recognizing Christ as preeminent as he is. Lord, I thank you and I praise you that we can celebrate the sanctity of life today. And I pray. Amen. Now, our final passage this morning is found in Psalm verses, verse, 26, verse 25, verse 6. It says this, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old.